Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, good morning, Ward. So we have a great guest today. Her standing here at the Naval Institute is indicative of what Naval Institute membership provides. That's right. Before we get to Megan Eckstein, our award-winning reporter from USNI News, who's done a great piece about carrier readiness in the Navy. Um, just want to highlight for our listeners, we are a member-based organization, and membership supports everything we do from proceedings to Naval history to the Naval Institute press to our events and conferences and USNI News. Even though USNI News is free to the to the end user, it's not free to us to produce, right? So uh, if you have the time today and or you enjoy what, we, what you hear on the podcast and you enjoy what you read on USNI News, go to www.usni.org forward slash join and become a member of the Naval Institute. Digital is, membership is, is only $39 a year. Digital membership, $39 a year. Full membership, which gets you the uh, print issue of proceedings in your mailbox every month, is uh, $65. And we have a special uh, holiday code right now that's called uh, Holly 20. So if you put in the uh, discount code H-O-L-L-Y 20, you'll get a 20% discount. Oh, I like that. A Christmas yeah. theme. Holly. Christmas I see what theme. you did yeah, there. We're, we're heading yeah. into the holidays. All that's right. right. All right. So let's go to Megan now. Her article last week that is getting a lot of attention is called No Margin Left. Overworked Carrier Force Struggles to Maintain Deployments After Decades of Overuse. And I'll just start off, Megan, before we uh, let you kind of hit the the 30,000-foot view, Navy aircraft carrier operations are up 40% this year over last year. 40%. That's significant. Even as the service has fewer available carriers for tasking due to maintenance and acquisition challenges. So talk, talk to us a little bit about this article overall, and then we'll get to some specific questions. Yeah, thank you for having me today. And it's great to see both of you. I uh, miss being in the office with you guys. So it's great to chat this morning. Um, yeah, so at USNI News, you know, we cover maintenance, we cover acquisition, we cover operations, and we've been kind of hitting piecemeal some of the, the threads that run through this article. Uh, but starting about last year, we really just started to, to see some problems on the horizon, um, not necessarily problems that the Navy wanted to acknowledge, but I think everything kind of came into view this year. Uh, basically, in 2018, when the new National Defense Strategy came out, it called for a focus on Russia and China as the top tier threats, and everything else was supposed to fall to a lower tier, which includes Iran. Um, Iran had been kind of a focus of Middle East carrier operations for a while, in addition to, uh, you know, dropping weapons in the fight against ISIS. Um, but presence against Iran had been driving quite a bit of presence. Um, and that under the national defense strategy was supposed to become a lower tier priority. The Navy was supposed to be focusing on building and retaining readiness and lethality for a future fight. So if you look at the data and the story, Uh, In 2018 and 2019, Navy carrier operations actually did fall. Um, And you can see in one of the charts that we have that part of that is due to lower presence in U.S. Fifth Fleet. So for two years, the Navy was doing what the Pentagon told it to be doing. They were operating less. They were sustaining their readiness at home. They were catching up on maintenance work that hadn't been done in a while. Uh, And this year, the carrier demand just skyrocketed. And, um, you know, the combatant commanders always want aircraft carriers. The Pentagon leadership doesn't always have to grant it. But this year they did. Um, So the carriers have been very, very busy. Uh, Number wise, it was the busiest year since the beginning of the Arab Spring. 
Um, so really the Navy just found themselves in this situation where they had a backlog on maintenance. Um, you know, productivity at the maintenance yards is improving, but there's just so much work to be done. Um, not enough people to do it. And so they had this situation where they had fewer aircraft carriers that were actually ready to deploy at a time when they were asked, being asked to do more than in the past couple of years. Um, so you have the situation now where two aircraft carriers, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast, are about to go out on a double pump deployment, which obviously, in addition to being stressful on the whole of the ship, um, you know, it's hard on the air wing, it's hard on the crew, it's hard on um, the escorts that go with it. And uh, then you have other sailors who are sitting in very le- lengthy maintenance periods, not being able to do the jobs that they want to be doing. Um, so I, I really think the crux of this story is, you know, it, it's a it's an operational issue. It's a readiness issue. It's a material issue. But it's also really a people problem. Um, and the Navy has very, very busy sailors and they have sailors who are stuck in the maintenance yards, not happy um, and just really trying to figure out how to how to remedy the situation. So is this Iran? Is that the root cause of the increased deployments this year? So what had happened was last year, um, then National Security Advisor John Bolton um, rushed the carrier into the Middle East to kind of provide a hedge against Iran. Um, You know, their activities kind of ebb and flow. Uh, But last year, John Bolton really wanted to have an aircraft carrier just parked off the coast of Iran, basically saying, don't mess with us. Um, and so that started last year, but there has been up until last week, I believe, um, there had been heel to toe aircraft carrier presence um, in the Middle East, whereas there hadn't been uh, for a stretch of time before that. So really, you know, when you look at not having very many aircraft carriers that are potentially available, um, they've just they've been rushed out the door as quickly as, you know, Com2X has finished, basically, so that somebody is always in the Middle East. Uh, it led to USS Abraham Lincoln's deployment being extended. Um, it, it's just led to a lot of hardships to maintain that heel to toe presence there. And you point out that on the East Coast right now, there's just one aircraft carrier that is ready to deploy or or even capable of supporting a deployment right now. That's the Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. um. It's a tricky situation. So right now on the East Coast, uh, and I've been told not to make too much of the East Coast versus West Coast, but I just think this is sort of a nice analogy of, you know, some of the challenges that the Navy faces all, you know, coming together. Um, But USS Gerald R. Ford is very busy at the moment, but they're, uh, since their 2017 commissioning, they're still not ready to join the fleet for their maiden deployment. They're still doing post-delivery tests and trials. Uh, they still haven't done shock trials, which will be next year. Still haven't done maintenance after shock trials. So they still have a while to go. Um, George H.W. Bush is in the later stages of a 28-month deployment, uh, which is part of what I was referring to with just these very lengthy uh, maintenance activities, um, mostly having to do with the capacity of Norfolk Naval Shipyard. So two well, of the So four, you, you said it was a deployment. You mean maintenance availability. Oh, I'm so sorry. Maintenance, yeah. Yes, a 28-month yeah. maintenance availability. Thank you for catching that. Um, so so two of the four ships that are stationed on the East Coast are not available for tasking because of maintenance and because of you know a- ongoing acquisition activities. So that leaves two. Um, Harry S. Truman has been so busy in the past couple of years. Uh, they've done their own couple sets of double pumps, which is outlined in the story. Uh, they are currently in their own maintenance period, which is kind of an odd thing. It's being called an extended carrier incremental availability, which I've never heard of before. 
uh, basically it takes the same seven months as a plan incremental availability, but they're doing less work, uh, which is probably indicative of the capacity at the shipyard as well. Um, so they're in for seven months doing maintenance, which only leaves USS Dwight D. Eisenhower to respond to whatever the world may bring, um, which, you know, it's, it's not my place to judge good or bad, but I would say, you know, that's problematic on a good day. But right now we also have COVID to worry about. And so, you know, on the East Coast, you only have one aircraft carrier that even could deploy. Um, you know, God forbid they have some some health issues. Um, I just think it's a really precarious situation for the Navy to be dealing with right now. It, it's interesting to me, right, that when you think about uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, that ship was commissioned in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So that's, that ship's getting close to 50 years old. Mm-hmm. And then you got the uh, on the West Coast, the ship that you mentioned is the uh, Theodore Roosevelt, which was my first ship in the Navy. God, how many years ago was that? But she was brand new back at the, uh, in, the, in the late 80s. So that ship's 40-something years old already. So these are not new carriers, right? So you got Two ships, uh, you know, that that have been double pumped or about to be double pumped that are not spring chickens. They're not spring chickens. And I would also point out to your point, Ike is 43 years old and has had uh, its fair share of maintenance challenges, Um, you know, being due to being overrun. um, She did two sets of double pumps back to back, I think, um, earlier in the decade. So, you know, the ship's been been worked very hard. But you know, to bring the people back into it, if you look at Eisenhower about to go do a double pump, they just broke records on their first deployment for being at sea for the longest amount of time without any port calls on account of the COVID pandemic. They weren't allowed to stop. They weren't allowed to get off the ship. They weren't allowed to do, you know, a lot of the fun things that typically go with deployments. And then Theodore Roosevelt, their last deployment was so stressful on the crew because they did have a COVID outbreak. Uh, they were sidelined in Guam for two months. So, I mean, that crew went through a lot on their last deployment. Um, both crews, I know, I, I, I can only imagine both scenarios, um, you know, being at sea for that long, as well as having the outbreak on the ship. Um, and they're being asked to turn around and go back out again. Yeah, we've had uh, guests on the podcast in previous episodes who were in that strike group um, who have a great attitude. You know, they're ready to do it up. But as we know, and as we pointed out in the show, the bow wave it creates sort of hits, um, you know, three to five years after the fact when it's time to roll back to sea duty and you don't get to get your advanced degree or you don't get to uh, have that shore duty you were looking forward. Maybe your personal life uh, is in disarray as a function of being gone for such extended periods. This is not a new story. This is the oldest story ever told, perhaps. Um, so, um, the the unintended consequences of just doing the math is something that we're not even really dealing with yet because we can't grasp it. Um, you know, if you were to talk to Chinfo or talk to CNO's office or anybody, they would put a good face on it in that they say that the, you know, flex scheduling and other things with uh, their ability to come out of the paradigm of the way that carrier schedules had been written traditionally and, you know, op tempo versus pers tempo and inter- interdeployment training cycles, all of that, they can innovate and, and put a good face on it. But as you rightly point out, it's not so much, although it is about the materiel readiness, it's also about the people. And I will mention that even as we're having this conversation, one of our colleagues, Tom Cutler, who, who is a, a, an adjunct professor um, at the, where does he teach, Bill, the Naval War Naval, College? Naval War College. Yeah, so yeah. at the Naval War College, he just got an email from a student who asked for an extension on an assignment because he's a crew member aboard 
TR, and he's been uh, sort of isolated in birthing because of COVID, to your point. You know, so the beams have crossed in myriad ways, demand signal with, with real-time, you know, current events, COVID, and so forth, that it's really, as you point out, and this is such a timely article, because I think everybody's like, oh, that carrier problem's been solved because of this uh, uh, OFRP, right? That solved everything. And then we had a great article about the Navy is rudderless um, that sort of exposed the myth. And now your piece hits. You, you point out the maintenance component. You point out the, the presence component. What are some of the other things that we need to think about currently? Yeah, I would say there's a few things. Um, one of them is an ongoing conversation about whether the Navy wants to continue having the aircraft carrier fleet size that we have today. Um, the new Battle Force 2045 plan, I guess, is still being reviewed by the White House. But uh, that plan from former Defense Secretary Mark Esper actually calls for a reduction in aircraft carriers, which would, of course, only exacerbate this problem. Whatever um, happened to that guy? <laughs> <laughs> it seems so long ago. Yeah, it's a uh, time doesn't matter anymore. That was only like a week or two ago. But uh, so it, it's unclear if that plan is still the plan. Um, but it did call for a reduction in aircraft carriers, which again would only kind of compress the issue. Um, U.S. Fleet Forces Command, U.S. Pacific Fleet, and uh, U.S. Naval Forces Europe recently signed out an OFRP update, um, the Optimized Fleet Response Plan, and. Um, they haven't talked much about it yet, but the biggest change that I saw in the language was kind of um, rather than focusing on each individual aircraft carrier and carrier strike group, it really took a look at the fleet and the fleet's ability to produce ready carriers. So the change that I noticed is kind of this language of if we're able to meet all deployment requirements, then it's a success, like regardless of who does it regardless of who's in maintenance for how long, who's doing double pumps, you know, like if the fleet is able to meet the requirements, then that's a win. Um, and that's a big change in how it's being talked about compared to, I think it was 2014 when OFRP first came out, where it was very much about keeping ships and the air wing and their escorts on the same 36 month schedule. Um, so to me, that kind of signals that the Navy is just accepting you know, the situation as it is, you know, the, the one pushback that we did get to this article is that double pumps are okay under OFRP and that like it's something that uniquely the U.S. Navy can do and that it's a sign that everything's working because ships are still going out and deploying, um, which, you know, I, I don't want to keep beating the same drum, but, you know, doesn't really address the people side of the issue. Yeah, so what, what is for the audience a double pump? We've used that term a couple of times. So oh, what, what's yeah. the math of a double pump? So basically within... The, the nominal 36-month cycle, you should be coming out of maintenance, doing your basic training, doing your integrated training, doing your advanced training, and then you go out on deployment. And then theoretically, between the end of your deployment and when you go back into the maintenance yard, uh, there should be a little bit over a year. Um, and the idea is that you spend that time building up this surge capability, right? Like you're training to a high degree, you're keeping the air wing sharp. You're keeping the ship crew sharp. Everybody is at like their top readiness level during that time. And typically that's done near the home port, um, sailing in local waters. It might be participating in a bigger exercise such as bold alligator or rim pack or something like that. But typically it's local operations. What we're seeing with these double pumps is that instead of doing local training, these ships are going back out on another international deployment. So within that same training cycle, 
you've been trained once, you went through maintenance once, but you're doing two full deployments. Um, so whereas if you were doing local training, you'd be able to go home and see your family, you'd be able to go home and run errands and take care of your house and do what you need to do at home. Instead, you're on deployment overseas again. Um, so, uh, basically the, the Navy is making the argument at the moment that double pumps are okay. It's part of the plan. As long as the fleet is able to meet its deployment requirements, then it doesn't matter which ship is fulfilling those deployments, um, which, like I said, is a departure from the original OFRP, which kind of centered more on the ships. So the, the chief of naval operations recognized uh, in the article that they're not working with their full number of carriers. You know, there might be 11 in the fleet, but he only really has five at his disposal, um, you know, to be considering right now. Uh, but there just wasn't any clear indication that the Navy's willing to take, you know, strong actions. Um, one thing that they had done recently that I thought was kind of interesting was the, uh, the Harry S. Truman did this dynamic force employment deployment, employment deployment, um, the other year. And it was really interesting because they deployed, they didn't go to the Middle East like everyone expected, but they kind of worked their way through the Mediterranean, uh, worked with some partners, came back home for, you know, some pure side maintenance work in Norfolk. And then all of a sudden they left again and they're up north of the Arctic Circle. So it was a regular deployment, but it had a really interesting impact of keeping, you know, potential adversaries on their toes, kind of keeping allies on their toes, doing different things than we would usually see from a Navy aircraft carrier. Um, and, and it just showed kind of this a different kind of operational strength compared to just the usual presence missions that they've been doing. Um, so I think right now the Navy is still, and the Joint Force is kind of looking at, you know, we need to have this heel-to-toe presence. We need to do what we've always done. And they really deviated from that idea of dynamic force employment and being unpredictable. And I think that a return to that concept might actually help their problems right now. You know, if you don't look at it as I need to push the very next aircraft carrier available out, you know, the day that they're done with their training, push them out into the Middle East and have them sit there for a while. You could probably make better use of the force if you mixed it up a little bit and did these, you know, different unpredictable types of deployments. Yeah, Megan, I was going to mention that the, the Truman uh, 2018, that double plump, the, uh, the d- dynamic force employment, that was, it was not two uh, seven or eight or nine month deployments back to back. It was a couple months out, as you pointed in the Mediterranean, back home for what, six weeks or so, eight weeks. And then they went uh, way up in the high north. They did a huge uh, NATO exercise, biggest one uh, above the Arctic Circle since the end of the Cold War. And then they came home. And that was part of, you know, Secretary Mattis wanted to be more operationally uh, what unpredictable, right, to mm-hmm. our adversaries and, and to, as you pointed out, to even to some of our allies as well. Like, let's do some different things. Let's mix it up. So it's not um, the, the Russians don't know, oh, you know, here, here's when the Truman's going to deploy. Here's when the Eisenhower's going to deploy. Here's when the Stennis is going to deploy. And look, there they go straight to the Middle East, right? But I'm curious, as you know, the uh, you, you pointed out, there's a great graph here. And the graph does show that um, there was a, a reduction in carrier deployments from 2017 to 18 to 19, and then back up 40% uh, this year, 2020. So when you talk to uh, Navy spokespeople, none of them said, hey, that's an aberration. We're going to try to push this back down to what we had in 2018 or 2019. They, The Navy seems to be okay with this supply and demand level. 
Uh, well, you both know, being former officers yourself, the Navy doesn't say no to missions. Um, so, you know, they're, they're being asked to operate this way. So they're saying, OK, we'll find someone who can do it. Um, Admiral Gilday, the chief of naval operations, uh, acknowledged that he kind of has two competing interests. On the one hand, he has to man, train and equip the Navy, but he's also a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And in that role, um, of course, he wants to advocate for naval power. Um, and, you know, I, I've had this conversation with a few folks now. Um, just the way the budgets are done is so difficult because if the Navy starts saying, oh, well, you know, we really can't take on this mission right now. We need to work on our readiness. They're not going to get the same amount of money from the Pentagon the next year. Um, you know, that you need to get the defense secretary on board and then you need to get Congress on board. And one way to do that is to be active in your deployments and to be really proving your role in the world. Um, so there's sort of this you know, backwards incentive to say like, yes, we can do the mission, of course, because we want to continue getting the funding that we're asking for. Yeah. I mean, this again is, is the dynamic that's as it's ever been. Um, of course, uh, the CNO, as you've rightly pointed out, as a member of the, the, the joint chiefs is, is going to advocate for naval power. Of course, he's never going to say tilt, uh, to a demand signal from a COCOM. Um, but as we're pointing out and as we have pointed out, the other shoe will drop, so let's imagine that the Moderna Pfizer vaccines are distributed and COVID-19 is something that we can not be over, but manage to the degree that we get back to quote unquote normal. And we are not on, uh, you know, Microsoft Teams. We're actually in my office in Beach Hall having this conversation like the good old days, right? Okay. At that point, what happens? Well, the employment picture improves. To include, and this is a foot stomper because I've lived through these cycles, airlines start hiring again. And at that point, if you have ridden hard and put away wet, your air wings and your ship's company, not just aircraft carriers, but the entire strike group worth to the small boys, to the subs, stand by for an exodus, you know, and there's no amount of bonus money that you have at your disposal to stymie that reality. And so I predict this will be the problem and we'll be talking about the manning problem. We'll be talking about how squadrons are manned at 60% of requirement and we're missing sorties and so forth and so on. This will be a conversation we have in three years. And I'm not saying that anybody's doing other than what they have to do in the moment. I'm just pointing out what is actually going to happen here because nobody, not the CNO, not Fleet Forces Command, not a squadron skipper is going to say tilt. It's just not the way that they're wired, and the, and the country should be grateful for that. But you can imagine the quote-unquote leadership challenges that squadron COs, ship COs are dealing with are really acute right now. Suicide ideation, sexual harassment, bullying in the work centers, all of this stuff that happens in normal times is now pressurized because of COVID and because of op-tempo to the degree that it's, it's a serious issue. And Yes, you can put ships to sea, but stand by for the second and third order consequences as a function of doing this. Because, when Megan, when you point out what double pump means, I get claustrophobic. I mean, it was bad enough because of the interdeployment training cycle. It would start a few months after you got back from deployment. You'd go to Fallon for five weeks, right? That's not home. You're like, oh, well, you can go to Reno and play cards. It's like, okay, but I want to go home and mow my lawn, right? And I want to deal with my 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 toddlers and, and see my wife. So that's just the beginning. Then you go into the other in for two weeks, out for 10 days, in for four days, out for six weeks, and then you finally go on deployment. 
And as you've heard many times, deployment is when that's the easy part, you know, when you actually start the, the clock. But I'm talking about a six-month deployment. The standard now, as we've flagged, you know, we've, we're breaking records and we celebrate that. But those records are on the backs of sailors, you know, and their families. So you get back, you barely catch your breath. Hey, Dad, can you be my assistant Little League coach? Sorry, son, got to go back out for a double pump. Those realities are what is going to affect retention and thereby readiness in the out years. So that's sort of the thread around your piece um, that you don't approach directly, but we need to keep in mind. Those are the stories Megan will be covering next year and in 2022, right? We we can predict your headlines now. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the, uh, the the context for that is that you know regardless of what the future force structure plan actually is, the Navy is on a growth path right now. They need more sailors, and it's not just a recruiting issue; it's a retention issue, as you mentioned. Um, the Navy has been really clear that to have a much larger fleet, that's going to come on the backs of the chief's mess. Um, you can't just have a bunch of like very junior sailors running the Navy. You need to work on retention as well as recruiting new folks. Um, and that, that's just being made all the more difficult with all the circumstances right now. When we talk about the program of record, Megan, I've heard, you know, as we're talking about it, 500 ship XX, or, you know, four, 355, whatever the number is between, you know, Modley's plan and, and what was being socialized right before Esper left. There's always this question about how many carriers, and I've heard as few as nine you know, in, in the face of, of drone capability or other unmanned things that equal up to 500. So to, to my eye, what your piece suggests is nine is not enough going forward if we keep leaning on aircraft carriers as, you know, sort of the presence end all and be all. Um, so what do you think about, about what has been bandied about, about what the program of record in terms of Ford class carriers is going to be going forward? Well, I always preface everything I say with it is my not my job to tell the Navy what to buy. So I will not make any <laughs> recommendations to them. Uh, but I will say, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether the aircraft carrier is relevant going forward. Um, if you look at China as our primary threat, uh, they have some very long range anti-ship missiles. So the question is always how effective is a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier and carrier strike group in the face of that threat? Um, regardless of however that conversation goes, I think the point is that they're very in demand right now. Um, and, and I don't see that demand decreasing anytime in the near future. Uh, you know, when projections are being made out to 2045, maybe the Chinese threat will materialize. Maybe it won't. I'm certainly not an Intel expert to understand any of that. Um, so I, I really wouldn't want to predict, but I would just say that it's very clear that combatant commanders want aircraft carriers now. Uh, they want them more than the Navy can produce them. And so just, you know, regardless of where the Navy goes with acquisition, I think they need to manage. You know, they always say that, you know, a decade from now, I think it's like 80 percent of today's fleet will be in the next decade's fleet. Um, so it's not just that you have to maintain, you know, your people and kind of managing those operational needs now. But those ships are still going to be around a decade from now. So if you want to be successful a decade from now, you need to keep the ships in pretty good shape. Uh, so just balancing operations and the maintenance and and the training and the people and all, all those other factors. Yeah, so that leads to the question I was going to ask, because I think you guys, you and Sam and Molly, you do a, a fantastic job of covering the maintenance side of things, right? And the shipyard throughput and the problems that have you know come up in a variety of different classes of ships, including the littoral combat ships, et cetera, right? So 
What's the throughput issue? How how is the Navy trying to address um, speeding up and improving the quality of maintenance and the speed of maintenance in the in the public and also the private shipyards? Um, trying to figure out the succinct way to answer that question. Um, so when sequestration happened uh, at the beginning of the decade, a lot of shipyard workers at the public yards were laid off. Um, the workforce dropped dramatically. So the Navy in the past few years has been trying to build that back up. However, that means that you're hiring and training new folks who don't have the same level of experience as the people who left. Um, so the Navy is at the staffing levels they want to be right now. So it's not necessarily that they don't have enough bodies, um, but they're having significant rework issues. Um, for example, uh, during Ike's last maintenance period, uh, she was supposed to be in for six months. That dragged out for about 19 months. Um, and I was told part of it was just the ship was in worse condition than expected, and they had to add a lot of items they weren't anticipating doing. But part of it was just the amount of rework that had to be done. Um, you had new people doing a task. It went for inspection, and it wasn't done properly, so they had to go back and redo that work. Um Hopefully that will get better over time. I know the Navy is looking at ways of training people faster, but there's only so much, you know, at, at a certain point, you just need to do your job over and over and over and over again to get better at it. Um, so I, I don't know how quickly they can really remedy that problem. Um, there is talk about sending more work to the private yards, but the private yards are also being asked to build more ships right now. So it's just really unclear to what extent they're going to be able to expand not only their ship building, but also their ship maintenance capacity. So I think, you know, both ends are really being strained right now. So it's just a matter of, you know, you can get bodies, but you, you need people who are really well trained in electrical work and in, you know, very difficult welding techniques. And, um, you know, both the private industry and the Navy are investing in um, I mean, they have these really cool, like virtual training trailers that they send out and you can really immerse yourself in this like 3D virtual experience, which is awesome. Like, I would love to be trained that way. Uh, but, you know, as I said, at a certain point, you just need to do the job repeatedly to get better at it. So, Yeah, great points. Yeah, so the just like with the collisions in the summer of 2017, um, it's not until something breaks that we take decisive action, right? There's, there's no CR being written out about carrier availability uh, because they're not broken yet. I mean, the carrier, never mind, it's the same carrier that just went, is putting to sea with a full air wing. Those air wings are making their sorties for whatever chaos they're serving in whatever theater, um, at, you know, whether it's Fifth Fleet or some joint joint command or, or whatever. What we're talking about on the subjective, admittedly, side in terms of attitudes, morale, and whatever, isn't a driver at the moment. And so I'm just wondering what, what – would have to happen in terms of a McCain Fitzgerald type of circumstance for the Navy to actually say tilt to a COCOM or, or OSD. The only thing I would say to that is that the point of the optimized fleet response plan is not only to cover, you know, routine deployment needs, but also to build a surge capability so that if, something happened globally, and if the U.S. Navy needed to, you know, not just have their one aircraft carrier in the Middle East and one in the Pacific, but if they really needed to surge, you know, for a fight, that they would have trained and ready, and not just, you know, kind of ready, but like highly ready aircraft carriers that are ready to go out. So that's the whole point of OFRP is to 
to deploy, but also to build this surge capability. Um, right now, the surge is what's missing because everybody that's being trained and certified to go is being sent on a routine deployment. There is no surge capability. Um, and I hope nothing happens to really draw attention to that. But I think that might be the inflection point is, you know, if there was a catastrophe and if the U.S. needed to surge three, four five aircraft carriers forward, they can't do that right now. Um, I mean, I guess you could yank an aircraft carrier out of maintenance early, but that's not something the Navy really wants to have to do. So I, I was trying to think of a way to, you know, maybe put that into layman's terms. And the only thing I can think of is like, you know, if you're trying to be really good with your calorie consumption, right? And so you're watching what you eat and you're exercising a lot to like, you know, create that deficit of calories. But then at the end of every day, you're in a really good position, but you sit down on your couch and eat a bowl of chocolate ice cream. Like you haven't really created any extra calories because <laughs> you're consuming them all at the end of the day. And uh, I just kind of feel like that's where the Navy is at the moment, where they're, they're, they're in this plan that's supposed to create surge capability, yet there is no surge that's available. Well, and that's huge, again, to get – I love your calorie count <laughs> analogy <laughs> and not to get into politics. But, you know, we sh as a nation, we have to ensure that, that uh, the commander-in-chief doesn't start fights that we can't finish. You need surge capacity to to conduct a war, especially against a uh, a, a significant power like Iran. Um, you know, and we can laugh about third world and dot dot dot, but they have substantial. And oh, by the way, a lot of it was created during the Shah era. They have F4s and F14s. Um, I think they have at least two F14s that work. Um, you know, so th there's a threat, and we need to be mindful of that. So. The, what you just said is an absolute foot stomper, and the audience should uh, be mindful of that. Yeah, and you're just talking about going to war with Iran, right? We're not even talking about the two pure competitors that the national defense yeah, strategy is point. focused on. Good point. You know, everything outlined in the story, you know, I'm trying not to be 100% gloom and doom. Uh, you know, on the East Coast, it's in a challenging position right now. Uh, but, you know, in the next year or two, um, George H.W. Bush will come out of maintenance. Uh, Ford will finish all her post-delivery activities and join the fleet. You know, there is sort of that glimmer at the end. Um, but everything, all the timelines that I wrote out in the story are kind of best case scenarios and, you know, not based on any COVID outbreaks at maintenance yards and kinds of things. So, um, you know, obviously we hope that things go well and the Navy can kind of bring more available carriers back into the fleet. But I just think that the situation they find themselves in now, um, you know, there's no guarantee they won't end up back here again. And I, I really hope this starts a conversation about when to employ aircraft carriers, how to employ them, how to get best use of them, whether it's, you know, heel to toe presence, just sitting off the coast of another country or doing more interesting things with them. Uh, I'm not the person who should be making those decisions, but I really do hope that this at least starts a conversation about those topics um, and how to best take care of the Navy now, but also with an eye towards the future. Well, I think you've started that conversation because just in the past week, I've gotten about six or seven emails from my contacts and some proceedings authors who have emailed me the link to your article and just said, wow, this is a fantastic piece. It lays it all out and it really does. So we've been talking to Megan Eckstein the award-winning reporter from USNI News. Her article, uh, published on 12 November, is titled No Margin Left, Overworked Carrier Force Struggles to Maintain Deployments After Decades of Overuse. You can find it at news.usni.org and just do a search for No Margin Left. Megan, it has been great talking to you today. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Yeah, thanks, Megan. And Mr. Pulitzer, if you're out there, I hope you've read this piece. It's fantastic. <laughs> I am not kidding. Great stuff. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.